All right, Katie, how are you doing today? Good, Alan. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm still chewing on what we talked about last time regarding the 1%. Mm, same. And so I want to hear about your 1%. For me, I'm a pretty serious guy. And that relaxation is challenging, but really where I'm trying to lean in, is there one thing that I could do today that I know is not going to be perfect? And I'm going in with that intentionality, not I want it to be perfect and it wasn't, but rather, you know what? It's not going to be perfect and I'm okay with that. One thing. Okay. You're stressing me out here a little bit. What's the one thing? Have you done the one thing? Are you going to tell me what it is or are you going to leave me hanging? For me, it's even coming into this podcast that way. Okay. And because of the potential pressure, right, to put on myself, I better perform. I better get it right. Got to make sure everything is smooth. How can I come in with 1% less pressure that I'm going to mm -hmm. put on myself? Will there be pressure I put on myself? Absolutely. And as we talked last time, it's not about don't ever feel that again. Can I have 1% less pressure today? That's good. Okay. I can't wait to hear how that works out for you. Yours is much more deep and philosophical than mine. Mine is related to what we talked about last week and thinking about health. So mm. I have always been a runner. We've talked about that. I still think there should be a podcast about running, but. Yes, absolutely. So part of my journey towards health has been learning to also do resistance training. I am not a CrossFitter. I am not going to go in and lift heavy weights, but I do know as a healthcare professional and as I'm aging, I do know that doing resistance training is going to be a big part of what keeps me healthy for the long run. So I started a couple of years ago just dabbling in some resistance training. And so I went to a class at the gym that I normally go to. I go a couple times a week. But today I said, I'm going to work 1% harder today. When that instructor says, if you want to add a little weight, I'm just going to add a little weight. I didn't add a lot. Now, I was nervous because I have friends there and there's big mirrors. I was nervous that what if I can't finish these reps and I have to take the extra weight off? But it felt like that just one little extra percent. Now, I'm probably going to not be able to brush my teeth or my hair later, <laughs> lift my arms above my head. But just leaning into that just a little bit more. I'm not going to compare myself to what other people have going on. I'm just going to do a little bit more for myself. So... Yeah, it's think? that great intentionality, Katie, that you talked about. And as a reminder to all of us, it does start with what is that 1% and then the follow through to do it. Knowing that this is not, again, about pressuring and you all, you're going to feel bad if you haven't done 1% since the last time we talked, but that intentionality and then the follow through to do it. It's good. So it'll be interesting, Katie, as a follow up to see if that 1% resistance training decrease the teeth brushing 1% <laughs> if it all evened out or maybe more than 1%. Mm -hmm, we'll see. Mm -hmm. I will let you know, but being married to dentists, I can tell you that's probably, it's just going to mean that I'm whimpering a little as I'm engaging the bicep to brush yes. my teeth for the full 90 seconds or the however long the dentist says it should be. Sorry to all our dentists. 
listening out there. No, and for our dentist out there, invite fellow dentists. You never know what you might learn That's on right. our show. We love you. That's right. Katie, what are we going to talk about today? Well, Alan, we are talking about something that's a little scary, but it's asking for help. So I don't know if you've ever asked for help. I don't know if you have ever not asked for help when you knew that you needed it or what that looks like for you. But I'm going to dig into your soul a little until you turn the, turn the camera and the mic off on me. But we're really talking about what does it look like for leaders in healthcare. I remember that we are all leaders. We all lead mm -hmm. from somewhere. What does it look like to ask for help? We want to think about why we might do that. What are the benefits of that? Not just to look vulnerable or to share the burden, but why are we doing that? And then also, like, how do we discern? I'm most excited about talking about how do we discern when we ask for help or when we just buckle down and get it done. Okay, so I am scared um, for our topic. And to go a little bit scarier, this is not simply going to be a podcast of here are the three things to do to ask mm -hmm. for help. Although we will give some practical, hopefully, tips that can be helpful. But we're going to get beneath the surface of help. And we're going to invite all of you to come along. To answer Katie's question... I am a poster child for Mr. Independent. What that means is that help for me is something I give, I don't receive. And part of that is only child from a generation. We've talked about generations that tends to be very independent as a Gen Xer. I didn't get married till I was 37. I'd never had a roommate my single life until the day I got married at 37. Yes, we're still happily married. And yes, we'll have Laurie on as a follow-up to verify that. And I say all that not as excuses, not as labels, not that I get to play this independent role. But I say that as part of my story and part of my journey, it has made me asking for help more and more difficult the older I've gotten. And part of that is I don't ever want to appear needy. I am there to help others. And I would say that we could all say that as healthcare professionals and we celebrate that. We are not saying stop doing that. But when those roles are reversed, I find myself very uncomfortable. I physically feel uncomfortable. I can begin to engage, as I've shared before, in guilt and shame. Why am I so needy? Why do I need others' help? The oughts and shoulds be helping others. That's what I do. That's what I enjoy. What's wrong with me? I could go on and on. I'll stop there to simply say, this is still really hard for me. Alan, thanks for sharing that. I think, honestly, just naming the fact that it's hard is really a first step. And I know that we'll break that down a little bit more. When we say like, why is it so hard to ask for help? Why is it so scary? I think you just sharing your personal experience and through your lens really shed a light on some of the things that I wanted to bring up, which are how in many of our cultures, whether that's your generational culture, your ethnic, how, where you grew up, how you grew up, it's really frowned upon to ask for help. and. Thinking about, like you said, those oughts and shoulds, what would 
my mentors think? What would these other people think if I asked for help right now? And it's like we can put that judgment on ourselves so easy. And I don't know if you're like me. I know you probably are like this, where the judgment that we put on ourselves when asking for help Mm -hmm. is way worse and way harsher than the judgment that anyone else would put on us for asking for help. What are some other things that... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, because Katie, for me, when I receive help, it's basically broadcasting to the world weakness. And I will do whatever I can to try to conceal that. Mm -hmm. I know intellectually we all have weaknesses, sure. But I don't want mine to be public or broadcast. But when I'm asking for help, I've invited at least one other person into that by me saying, I can't do fill in the blank. And that could be an area of competency. As healthcare professionals, as educators, Katie, like you and I, I really struggle if it puts me in the position of I don't know the answer, meaning I'm incompetent because I get paid to know the answers, yet I know no one knows all the answers. And so that can be a real challenge for me. And as I mentioned earlier, it also can tell the person on the other side of me, I don't have all this figured out. And for me, that's where fear can come in because I'm supposed to have it all figured out. I'm a leader. I love to have an organized, structured world. And now I'm saying that I, I don't. And this gets back to even younger when I couldn't fix something, but I want to be able to fix it. And I can't. We're asking him, all of you to not delve deep into your own stories, but to recognize, is this something that's always been a struggle? We talk about things can be seasons. For me, it's always been a struggle. And now that I'm more aware of it, doesn't mean the struggle goes away. It's just now the question of, so now what? Yeah. No, I think that's really important to consider. And especially how we interact with the other people around us when asking for help or when not asking for help. One of the things that has worked for a lot of us, think back. I know it's been a while, Alan, since you were in school, but if you could remember when you are in graduate school, when you're in your professional school, many of the traits that helped us survive those rigorous academic programs are really counterintuitive for asking for help, right? There are programs that are so cutthroat that we are competing for spots, and so we are not going to ask each other for help. And that faculty are so intimidating that asking for help would be just another reason, just something else to, like you said, make me look weak. And so it can be really hard to make that transition out of grind, grind, do it on my own to, wow, now I am here and I'm part of a whole healthcare team where there is help and help might look different in a lot of different ways, depending upon where you're practicing, it might look different. Help might not necessarily be weakness. Help might actually be strength in saying, you know what, I don't know this. In fact, I'll use the example of the physician and the dietitian. If a physician needs help with a tube feeding or a TPN order, the dietitian is uniquely placed to be able to help them do that. Having me as a dietitian step into your team and help you is what's best for the patient. You aren't expected to know these things in your training. We know that. So it's not weak. But I do know, like you said, we all like to know things and we we don't want to feel like 
we don't know what we're doing. Katie, let me ask you a follow-up to that. And I love that practical example as a healthcare professional. What was that like for you leaning into that space with that physician, potentially asking him or her for help with if it was a TPN? I'm curious what that was like for you. As a dietitian, very often what it looks like is that we are the ones being asked to step in and help the other healthcare professional. And that is empowering. That means that I can Mm. practice at the top of my scope of practice. That is what interprofessional collaboration looks like, where we are finishing each other's sentences. We are working collaboratively in step, in line, and being able to provide that care for the patient. Because again, this is what I went to school for. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about interprofessional education is because what I find very often, and I'm not picking on docs today, but this is just where most of my experience is, is that many of our healthcare professions don't know what dietitians do. They don't know that I've been trained to mm-hmm. calculate TPN. And I know as a pharmacist, that's something that, you know, that you're involved with as well. So imagine the synergy of the three of us being able to care for the patient together just by simply saying, hey, dietitian, can you help and step in on this case for me? And it actually takes away some of the stress from those other healthcare professionals because you know that you've got someone who's trained in this area. And it speaks, Katie, to some things that we've talked about, that importance of having those conversations and how none of us, as we've been talking about today, can tackle this on our own. And how important it is in to never travel alone, but to also lean into some areas that might be some discomfort for all of us. And that's that intentional choice. As Katie alluded, whatever side you're on where you're asking for the help, receiving the help, in our instances as healthcare professionals, it betters the patient. So this is once again, am I for the patient? And if so... Is there that opportunity where it's, whether it's receiving help from others or maybe I'm asking for help to better serve him or her? I think that's great. Thinking about the patient being the ultimate outcome and their experience, their safety, their communication with us team. This has me thinking about something that I've spent a lot of time working with is the concept of imposter phenomenon. Are you familiar with that term? I am familiar. Yes. Okay. And when I say I've done a lot of work, I should clarify. I've definitely felt imposter phenomenon, but I've also done a research study on imposter phenomenon in Mm. interprofessional education and teamwork and trying to improve imposter phenomenon by incorporating more teamwork. But Alan, when I say imposter phenomenon, what do you, what comes to mind? What do you think of? For me, it's often... Like, why am I in this room or why am I in the seat or why am I being invited? You can fill in the blank. It all gets to, I should not be here. I'm either not qualified. I don't have this skill set, whatever that might be. It is definitely a disempowering feeling that comes over me. And that's often internally generated. Yeah. And so if you think about all those feelings you're having, as an imposter, I don't deserve to be here. How did I get here? Some of the narrative things like, I'm not saying I've ever thought this, but gosh, I must have only gotten into this program because I needed another warm body, or I must have just been invited because I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. 
But if we're having these thoughts, the impact of imposter phenomenon on asking for help can be huge. Because what happens to someone who feels like they're an imposter, that lie that they're telling themselves is, oh, I definitely can't ask for help because I already don't deserve to be here. So there's no way I'm asking for help. So I think that's something that I'm really passionate about addressing like in my students and in the young professionals that I mentor is helping them really identify when they're having those imposter thoughts and then using that to springboard to when is it appropriate to ask for help? Is this a time? Because sometimes it is appropriate to ask for help and sometimes it's, I don't want to say it's not, but yeah, there are some things that we should know how to do and we should be doing. We need to figure that out. And it's a great point, Katie, that you bring up. And let's take into context those of us that may be teaching the next generations or working with the next generations in our professions to not enable behavior where I know I can ask for help for every single thing. And there's not an equation here, but I appreciate you bringing that up because my mind went to, I don't ask for help and I need to. I didn't even think about the other side of it is maybe I'm being asked for help all the time and I like to please people and I want to help. Am I actually disempowering, creating entitlement in those around me in preventing, in this case, healthcare professionals to grow into their skill sets? Oh, that's good. Yes, that's that duality of looking at it through two different lenses. So I think I love that's what I love about these conversations is we're uncovering things. Now we got to come up with solutions for them. But I think even just bringing awareness to it and like you said, naming what's hard is really important. Can we talk also a little bit about some different types of help? Okay, because I want to find out from you. When, you. when we're saying ask for help, my initial thought is I'm asking you to help me do something in my job. Like that example that I gave about the dietitian helping the physician with the TPN. Let's talk about a different kind of help. And maybe this is a whole other episode. I don't know. But what if as that healthcare professional, we need help? We need mental health help. What if we need help for substance abuse? You want to talk about scary into that space. So I don't know if you think that's a whole other episode or can we take a, just a little piece off of that and talk about why that might be so scary? Yeah, I think it could be another episode. And I know having had colleagues of mine in, as pharmacists who have had impairment issues in working in the candy store, this can be a very scary thing because if I ask for help, if I tell someone this has an impact on my livelihood, my license is potentially in jeopardy. And so I'm dealing with that tension of, okay, me being an impaired pharmacist is not serving my patient well at all. But if I say something to someone else, then I'm really opening the door. And so there's a real tension point there. And so what do we do as leaders if you work with individuals that may have these issues or if you're one of those individuals as well? It comes back again to what we've been saying. What is in the best interest of the patient? Now, that being said, I don't pretend that's an easy decision. It's an easy conversation. It's really hard to have that conversation with a colleague saying, I've really noticed, may not be impairment, but it could be a lot of other issues, health-related, and this is not serving our patients well, or I've noticed that you've made these mistakes over the last two or three days. 
Those are not fun conversations to give or to receive. But once again, if I'm for the patient, it's that conversation I need to have. And not just for the patient, but for your colleague and for yourself. It's just really scary, though, because in some of the conversations I've had at the national level, this is something that impacts all professions. I love that you, for pharmacy, really opened my eyes to how even more dramatic that might be than in some of our other professions when you're actually working with medications and whatnot. But thinking about how there really continues to be a stigma of seeking help Mm -hmm. for mental health or substance abuse. It's even in our, you know, when we go up for licensure, you have to answer questions about mental health and substance abuse. And it seems almost too scary to seek help than it would be to just continue on down that road, which that's, again, thinking about that check engine light before you have something really significant come along. And it brings up, and I know this sounds repetitive, but I think it's important. It also brings up the fact that if you are someone that's struggling, do not do this alone. Yeah. It can be very easy in that pit of despair to think there's no other way out, or I'm responsible for getting myself out, hence the independence, hence the not asking for help. And I want to encourage anyone out there. If you're struggling with any of these issues or issues we've not specifically mentioned, share that with someone else that's trusted because none of us can tackle any of these things, especially the issues we're talking about on our own. That's so good, Alan. And I think, too, I'm going to flip the coin there and say, as that leader, being that trusted person, creating that culture of safety in your team so that people can bring their authentic selves and practice at the top of their game and then ask for help when they need it. When we talk about culture, just a couple things here real quickly. I believe there's a couple key components. There's a transactional and a relational component. And what do I mean by that? In my culture, transactionally, we have work we have to do. Fill in the blank, regardless of healthcare professional. There are things that you have to do to serve your patients. That's a, that's a given. Where I've seen some cultures fall short is when that is the only component of the culture. There is also a relational component. And by that, I don't mean everyone's best friends. But there is a relational connectivity. I know you're for me. I know you care about me for who I am, not just what I do. And these can, at times, butt heads. Right. If I'm so relational, I may not get the work done that needs to be done, which can happen. (laughs) If I'm so transactional, I may never know the people around me, even though I'm with them 8, 10, 12 hours a day. This is part of that healthy culture that we're creating. And so what I would encourage all of us to do in holding that mirror up is you identify the culture in which you work, the culture which you create as a leader. Do you see it more transactional? Do you see it more relational? We're not here to say it's 50-50, but I will tell you if it's 95-5, either direction, that may be time for a bit of a course correction. Because as Katie said, we want to create that healthy culture where it is a safe place so that if I am struggling and need help, I can ask for help in that safe space. So I think culture is such an essential element, and oftentimes it can be on the back burner. I want to encourage all of us to put it to the forefront and the front burner. 
We've talked a little bit about benefits of asking for help. One of the ones that I wanted to mention also is that I don't know about you, but when I see someone else ask for help, it sheds some light to me on the fact that it's a safe place for me to ask for help too, when appropriate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Seen that in, have you seen that or felt that before? Yeah, I think as someone who's very observant, I will notice often the environment, the culture in which I'm in, or whether it's where I work, whether it's a place I visit. And I will notice if people are asking for help being vulnerable in some sense, the response. And I have seen the full gamut of cultures here. One where you never asked for help because that could literally mean your job. It certainly would mean that you would get passed over for promotion, advancement, that kind of thing. So it was a very toxic, very fear-driven culture. I've seen others where certainly it is asking for help. It can at times entitle someone so that it becomes an easy out if I don't want to do work. I will tell you, I've said this before, I'll say it again. If I, as a leader, never, ever ask for help in any way, it is harder for me to then expect the people who work for me to do the same. Now, I understand as leaders, sometimes we're restricted in how we can do things, ask for help to whom we can share. I I totally get that. But if I create a culture where it's not okay for me to ask for help, that will ripple out and ripple down. So I think we can model that in some, doesn't have to be dramatic ways, but I know that I will ask students for help with things like, okay, help me with this. What are your thoughts about that? It's empowering them. It also creates that culture that maybe they have something more serious. Now it's a safer place for them to share. I love that example. I'm guessing that you're mostly asking for help to use technology or the pencil sharpener. Yes. And it's important as far as which end of the pencil you put in Mm -hmm, the sharpener, mm -hmm. the eraser doesn't work quite as Mm -hmm, well when you try mm -hmm, to sharpen it. mm -hmm. Yes. One of the things that popped into my head, Alan, while you were sharing that is how much our past experiences with asking for help impact us. If you've asked for help somewhere and gotten your head bitten off, you're like the dog that got whacked with the newspaper. You're not going to ask for help again. In fact, depending on your personality, maybe your generation or your Enneagram number or whatever it is, you may hold on. So I am not even going to ask you to help me figure out how to use the printer and I'll just figure out my way around it. But it's that kind of that reflexive response that we might have based on our past experiences. Yeah, we all have self-preservation and it's healthy. But if I know, ooh, the last time I asked that or I saw one of my colleagues ask and that didn't go well for her, ooh, I'm not going to make that same mistake. And let me add another element to this. And you alluded to it earlier, Katie. Independence and doing things on my own has served me really well. Mm -hmm. Why would I change now? And that's largely my story. I won't go into those details, but I will follow it up with this question. Okay, Alan, so how's that working out for you now? And in full honesty and transparency, not as well. Does that mean I'm not functional? Nope. Does it mean I'm not successful? Nope. But what served me well younger in life, now at 51, is not serving me as well. What do I mean by that? I have more and more instances now where I need help. Like Katie said with technology, as an example, there are many more. 
what I have found is that when I do ask for help, even though that can be really hard on my pride, the results have been better. There's never a guarantee and I won't guarantee it, but I can tell you more times than not, the results have been better. That's good. So how do we figure out when to ask for help? I would say earlier rather than later. And this is that engine light coming on. The more I try to hide my need for help, the worse things get. And I used to think that I could hide things really well. Yeah, not so much. And so I would encourage all of us, that first sign when you think that warning light's coming on, ask for help. I would encourage any of you, if you say, oh, I've never asked for help, try a low stakes ask for help and see what happens. As we'll say many times, test the hypothesis that we're putting out there. Collect your own data and judge for yourself. Don't just take our word for it. That's largely been my journey is that, oh, if I ask for help, this is going to go really bad. It could more times than not, it didn't. It's my own data set now. I can pretend it's not there, but I have these experiences from the past. I will go one step further for me, and this ties into our generational piece. Then, Katie, I want to flip the question back to you. It can be very hard for me to ask people younger than myself for help. I can tell you I've done that twice recently with really talented, probably 30-somethings, and I can't tell you how much better things are. I can't even begin to describe. And so why do I say that? Look for the people that can benefit the patient, that can benefit you. They may be older. They may be younger. They may look different than you. They may look just like you. Don't be afraid to ask for help. When I am willing in humility to admit and then to articulate that I don't know how to do fill in the blank, it also empowers others as we've talked about. So you know, with generations, I think one of the beauty of the generations is that each of the generations has amazing and unique skill sets and experiences. When I tap into those generations, older and younger, things are always better. But I often have to ask for help first. I love that example of the generations because I can't even begin to imagine that in the future, some of those younger generations might be asking you for help about different things and just that how that relational connectivity and being able to share our different levels of expertise. It's the team. It's the teamwork and all bringing the best versions of what we can offer to each other and helping. When I think about when is it appropriate to ask for help, I immediately go into professor mode, which I'm going to try not to do, but I think there's a little bit of value. So hang in here with me for a second, Alan. I teach a, an orientation class for the profession. And one of the things that we always talk about is our scope of practice. What are we trained to do? And I always remind my students that they can go back to their scope of practice and remind themselves, yes, I can do this. I am trained to do this. So this is something that I am competent and we think about competence and we talk about that a lot. This is something that I am competent I've been trained in and that I can do. And so that really helps to combat that imposter phenomenon if it's the imposter phenomenon that is getting in the way of or is convincing them that they can't do it. And so then they're at that decision-making point where do I need to ask for help 
or can I actually do it? So we do have a lot of resources from our individual professions and our collective professions that I think we need to remember to tap into. And I think you bring up a great point of the value of people that have more experience, whether it's as a professional in your specific discipline, more life experience, that is such a valuable piece. And I know that for me, I've often asked people older than me for wisdom, and it isn't necessarily related to my job, although sometimes it is. This is the personal and professional that we've talked about. And so the asking for help can look a lot of different ways, but there's always value in having others, their thoughts, their opinions, their suggestions. Um, and so I want to encourage all of us, whatever it is, are there individuals that you can tap into that can provide a whole lot of wealth of information, knowledge, wisdom, experience that will help us in our daily lives? I think that's a great point, Alan. And it goes back to your comment about having a data set that you can rely on to help you make decisions. If you are getting feedback from a mentor, if you, especially if you are unsure, and again, I feel like I'm talking a little bit more to our younger listeners, if you are unsure if you are capable of doing something or if you need to ask for help, having a mentor to encourage you and to give you that somewhat objective, but that objective feedback to say, yes, you are capable of doing this. Yes, you are doing it well. You don't need to ask for help. For me, that has been just the light and the darkness for being able to make decisions in my everyday life, my everyday at work is that trusted mentor. Katie, I'm curious, as you sought out mentors and still do, was that an easy process for you, challenging? I don't want to assume either way. And so I'm curious what that looked like for you. That's a great question. And I think I'm probably a very different from a lot of our listeners. So if there are any, is there anyone out there who resonates with this? I'll be surprised. But because of my nurturer, connector, personality, and because humility is one of my core values, finding mentors is actually relatively, I don't want to say easy, but it's comfortable for me. I love connecting with people. I want to hear more about them. I want to have a mentor in basically every area of my life, okay? And so being able to have that connection and be a part of someone else's life is such a joy to me. Now, I will tell you the thing I do struggle, I struggle with sometimes is when someone comes to me for mentoring, it's that kind of false humility that you've taught me where it's, oh, why would you be coming to me for mentoring? I'm, mm -hmm. I still need so much mentoring. How can I mentor you? But even my mentees have taught me the incredible mm -hmm. power of being a mentor and a mentee. But I can yeah. see that finding mentors, I see it all the time in my students, that it is a challenge. Have I had times where I have reached out to someone for mentoring and it hasn't gone well? Sure. So I just tell myself they're too busy for me. It's not me. It's them. No. I think it does take a while. No. We've got to have a common interests and somewhat of common personalities to make it work. But that's a good, that might even be a future podcast is how to find a mentor. I think it, it could be very valuable. And I will tell you that fear of rejection can keep me from asking for help. 
Because as we've said, there's no guarantees. If I ask you to be a mentor, you may say no. Okay. I ask you for help. I might get ridiculed. You might say no. So that's a very real fear. And me experiencing that rejection, when you talk about naming something, that is a fear I struggle with in a whole wide range of areas. And so there is a vulnerability, as you were talking, Katie, in asking for a mentor. And so recognizing that, and if I have been rejected before, am I going to do that again, as we alluded to? Let me play the other side of the coin. So some of you out there may be saying, okay, Katie's this nurture connector, which means super relational, really enjoys that relational connectivity, that collaboration, very sensitive, attuned to the people on the other side of her. You know what? I'm a data-driven person. I like the structure and we're not saying Katie's not. So please hear me say that. But someone that's really driven by, I want the facts, the details. Yeah, the relational stuff's fine, but I'm about getting stuff done. Efficiency, structure, order, systems. This doesn't apply to me, does it? And I would say, no, it actually does as well. You may be looking for help and mentor. It may have a different approach. It may have the why the asking for help may look different. But guess what? We all need help in various capacities. So I, I want to encourage whoever's listening, however your tendency is, relational, transactional, both, that this is for everyone, though the ask and the need for help may look different. That's so good. I'm glad that you acknowledged the need for data-driven decision-making and also acknowledging the warm, fuzzy side of things as well, Alan. It's, we can do that as well. It's a both and, it's a right? Both and. Yep. Yeah. So, Katie, I mean, we've kind of alluded to this, but what if I'm still so resistant? If I still think there's no need, it's worth me doing this on my own. Any thoughts as far as consequences of that mindset or any experiences you've had where you made the conscious choice? No, I'm not asking for help. I've got this. Yeah. That's a great question, Alan. And I think it circles back to some of the things we've talked about in previous weeks, which is the stress and the burnout. I can definitely think of a time without going into all the details, but I can think of a time where I didn't ask for help because I'm the one who got myself into all of these things, right? I'm the one who said, yes, I will be the chair of that. Yes, I will lead this team. Yes, I will get this advanced degree, all of these things. So I should really be the one to pay the price for that. And unfortunately, what happened was not only did I pay the price for that in the terms of lack of sleep, wasn't exercising, wasn't eating very well. Now for a dietitian, that probably means like one less serving of vegetables or two fewer grams of fiber. But all of that to say, I wasn't taking care of myself. Then guess who else was losing out? My family. No, don't get me wrong. I was killing it at work and for all those obligations. But what really was starting to crumble was my personal health and ignoring some of the things I should have been doing for myself. And it really taught me that lesson to, now this could also be a whole other episode of when to say yes to things and when to say no to things, because I was the one who said yes to everything, but then I wasn't able to ask for help. Yeah, that's great, great insights. And I appreciate, Katie, how you 
once again, brought the personal and the professional together and how they do that. You can't keep them separated. And so how they can affect one another and they often do whether in health or unhealth. So thanks for sharing that example. And it is really, as we've said, that self-awareness. So holding that mirror up and is what I'm going through right now a season? Is this something that I've experienced over more than a season? That past performance, that past behavior is a good indication of the future. It doesn't mean that's what's going to happen. Don't, please don't hear me say that. But if I have a tendency and I've had a tendency as is mine to not ask for help, then for me to expect, oh, I'll ask for help easily moving forward is really not realistic. But as the science shows us, we can continue to change, but it requires that intentional attitude and those intentional next steps. Mm, Throwing out one of my favorite words there, Alan, intentional. That's one Mm. of my faves. To circle it back to the beginning, maybe that's the 1%, the thing that you consider for the next day or the next week is how is one, what is 1% that I can be more intentional in getting to know myself and getting to recognize where I might need some help. And in the context of today's conversation, it might be, I ask for help once this next week Mm -hmm. for something. Mm -hmm. One thing. Katie, any other thoughts about our topic today? I appreciate you bringing this difficult and challenging topic. I'm going to suggest a less difficult and easier topic for next time. But knowing what we're covering next time, I don't know that I can, we can truthfully say that. Yeah, up next is multitasking and how it might just not be working for you. You think it is, but it might not be. Stay tuned. Katie, as always, enjoyed our conversation. Until next time. Good to see you, Alan. Good seeing you.